welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast brought to you by Cracked Rackets. My name is Alex Gruskin. Joining me for our Australian Open Round 4 recap is former Denison men's tennis superstar, Cracked Rackets contributor, and the only person who makes me feel good about my forehand, James Foster McDonald. Jamie, hey, great shot. Pleasure to be here once again, my man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, there's been a lot of tennis going on, but last night I got to take a break off from the pro circuit, talk a little college tennis. So I felt like when I got into those round four matches this morning, watching the highlights, I was fresh. So I'm excited for this pod. What about you? What do you think of round four? I'm always excited. This is one of the rounds where I actually have the opportunity to see every single match. You know, in the early rounds, it's great that there's always tennis, but that's also the downside is you can't see every second of it. But this time I saw all of it. So it's awesome. Matt Stokowiak and I had this debate on our last episode. I'm curious about your thoughts. Oh, what do you enjoy more, the first you know few days, the mi- you know the middle rounds or the end rounds? And the the thing is, you know, the first few days you have so much tennis. The end rounds, obviously, the stakes are the highest. For me, as you mentioned, the middle rounds are the best because you have a ton of great matchups, a really high level of tennis, and still these are where the stakes start to rise. So there's plenty of pressure in these matches. Yeah, for spectating, especially at the Australian Open, you don't, I mean, because the primetime matches are at 315 or whatever, so, yeah, you know, you don't get a chance to see all of them, but the middle rounds, you've got a lot of evening matches still, or at least in, you know, Central Eastern time, so it's like, it's good. It's prime right there, because I can look at five different matches that all start at 7.30 p.m., you know, and I can still see a lot of good tennis. Oh, as you mentioned, the time difference does make things difficult. And for any fans out there who have missed on any of the action, want to catch up on any storylines, check out our website, CrackedRackets.com. We have kept you up to date all week long uh, on the Australian Open, and we look forward to doing that in week two as well. We've also got a ton of, a ton of great college content on there. Matt Stokowiak, Ryan Cardiff, Alex Gornett, Anna Bright. You know the team by now. Everyone's hard at work. Also, you know, you want those more, more instant updates, check out our social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Rate, listen, subscribe, review this podcast as well as our other podcast, The Cracked Interviews Pod. Uh, but yes, with all that plugging done, Jamie, this round four at the Australian Open was fascinating. There were so many great matches to talk about, a ton of upsets. You know, we even recorded an emergency pod as soon as Francis Tiafo took out Grigor Dimitrov on day one, match one of the round of 16. And, you know, I've already given my thoughts, but Jamie, let's just start there. What did you think of that result? Wild match. Uh, absolutely crazy. Um, super impressive from Tiafo, just all across the board. His ability to not only hit the shots that he did, but to keep his composure in the tough moments, um, you know, especially the crowd and everybody sort of sensed the tide turning a bit after that third set. Um, and all credit to the young American. He kept it together and, you know, beats a guy who arguably should have won that match, just given the momentum. Well, you look at some of the stats from this match. I didn't mention this one in our last pod, but total points, Dimitrov 171 to Tiafo's 166. You know, Dimitrov has 18 break points in this match and only able to convert three. Tiafo still has a ton as well, 13, and is able to convert five. But still, you can't say Grigor Dimitrov didn't have his chances. And I think the biggest thing we saw out of Francis in this match, his willingness to dictate, to be aggressive, to move forward to the net where he goes, um, I believe... 45 of 66 with a 68% uh, percent conversion. The best thing he did, in my opinion, and I'm sorry for repeating myself, anyone who's listened to the previous episode, but it's just the way he's approaching the net. He's not slicing all the time now. He's stepping into forehands, stepping into backhands, and following them in. That's true. That's absolutely true. And I'll tell you this, not only that, but when he does slice, you know, we talked about this at the end of last year. Um, I can't remember which pod it was on, but remember when we were talking about how all of his slices were just seemingly floating? Now he's not doing that. When he does slice, it's at the right time, and that ball is just cutting through the court. And when he has the opportunity, instead of being lazy with his feet and slicing, he's stepping into the ball and ripping it. And so you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's really impressive to see, and a fun fact, you know, Tiafo's going to be the one, I think, first on court, so he, or at least he was the first one to clinch his spot, so he becomes the first player born in 1998 to reach a Grand Slam quarterfinal in singles. You know, Stefano Tsitsipas, also born in 1998, obviously does it later on, and we'll get into that match in a second, but it's interesting, some of the guys on this list, you know, the first guy in 97 was Andre Rublev, who did it at the 2017 U.S. Open, 1996, Hyun Chung, uh, 
I did it obviously at last year's Australian Open. And then 1995, I love this one. Nick Kyrgios at Wimbledon 2014. How long ago does that feel? So long ago. I remember they were flashing all the stats about Kyrgios, and it's just like you look at his age and you're like, oh, wow, he's still actually really young. Like he's he's barely older than some of these guys we're talking about as next gen, but he's just been around for so long that it just seems like forever. Like that, that Wimbledon match against Nadal, like, that, God, how long ago? I mean, I feel like that was ages ago. Oh, I completely agree with you. Nick Kyrgios is like six months older than me. That's nothing. I'm in the uh, room with my roommate, Mike Lazaparty. He's older than Nick Kyrgios. Like, to me, that's an incredible framework that he could have gone through college the same years I did and just the roller coaster ride his career has been. But let's get back to, you know, something enjoyable. I want some final thoughts on Tiafo here. Live ranking right now has him at number 29, which would be a career high. Obviously, when you accumulate this many points at an event like a Grand Slam early in the year, that's so important for your ranking. What do you see Tiafo in terms of his ranking throughout this year? Do you see him progressing above this, maybe falling back a little bit, or do you think he'll be able to hold on to the spot? No, I think he takes momentum out of this and ends, at least, it's, I don't know about end of the year, because that's just so far away, you never know what's going to happen, but I mean, I think he's going to take, I think at one point during this year, he'll be top 20, top 25, and he'll stay there for a little bit. Um, you know, I think he's he's going to be able to rise to the occasion, I think, you know, with American tennis, especially with, you know, how Jack Sock has been performing over the last year or so, um, there's been a lot of unknown in the singles game, um, and so definitely a void to be filled. Um, and who's to say that it's not Francis's spot to take? Um, I think he can take a lot of positives from this tournament, regardless of if he progresses another round or not. Um, and so I'm looking forward to the rest of 2019 and you know how he takes it mentally. I've seen a lot of takes in tennis Twitter saying, oh, Tiafo's the new hope. We finally have someone we can rely on. Well, you know, he was the number two junior in the world. Fritz was number one. Paul and uh, Opelka both won junior slams. It's kind of like, no shit this crop is going to be exciting. That's what we've been talking yeah. about all of this time. And so some of those takes are a little bit annoying. Exactly. It's not out of nowhere. You know, that's that's the thing that people got to remember. It's like, yes, he's here now, and that's great, but... There's a, there's a chain of progression here. It's not just he randomly showed up. Um, and so I think that's evident, too. And just, you know, he talked about it in his press conferences as well and his on-court interviews. It's like, this is the work I've been putting in. And, you know, he gets emotional about it because it's true. It's, it's not just this randomly happened, but he's been putting in the, putting in the hard hours. And it's uh, needless to say, it's paying off. Another guy who's been putting in the hard hours, someone who's certainly earned his spot in this year's quarterfinal, Stefano Tsitsipas, who knocks out Roger Federer, 6-7, You know, you speak more from the Federer perspective than I ever could, Jamie. So in this match, was it something Stefanos did well? Was it something Federer couldn't do, or was it a little bit of both? Well, I mean, I think you have to credit Tsitsipas in this match. I mean, no matter what the stakes are, you take out Federer on a stage like this. He's de- he's the defending champion. He's Federer. Um, you know, it, you can't you can't come out of the way of this match and say, oh no, Federer just blew it. Um, Tsitsipas played an amazing match. You know, you saw in the rallies, he came up with big shots and big moments. Um, and you know, you just don't often see someone like this able to capture on and capitalize on these big moments against players like Federer, or Djokovic. So that was really impressive. Um, from the other, from the flip side, though, I will say, Federer had his chances. I mean, the margins of this match were incredibly just razor thin. And if you want to break it down by the stats, look, Federer goes 0 for 12 on break points. You know, the, you can't tell me the chances weren't there. The unforced air count on the forehand side alone in this match for Federer, it, I mean, that was just appalling to me. Um, and so, yeah, you got to give Tsitsipas credit, but you also got to look at Federer and say, hey, man, you did not play a clean match, and you still almost walked away with this. Any match where there's only one break of serve or there's three tiebreaker sets, it could have gone either way. I completely agree with you. And you look at some of the stats from this one. Tsitsipas, 20 aces against one double fault. That's exactly the type of performance you need when you're going up against one of these top three seeds. You know, he makes 60% of his first serves, wins 78% of those points, 64% of his second uh, serve points. As you mentioned, fights off all 12 of the break points he faces. Yeah. And I think the reason he was able to do that he was so aggressive in this match. He comes to the net 68 times, wins 48% or 48 of those points, 71% conversion rate. He put the onus on Federer to play defense. He said, "Hey Roger, you know, you're 37 years old now. Pass me." And, you know, sometimes obviously when you're playing Roger Federer when he's on his serve, he's going to be able to dictate and that's why this match was so close. 
But Tsitsipas held in there. You know, he played aggressive tennis. He did not start getting behind the baseline or get nervous or get afraid if he missed two balls in the row. He just kept attacking, and that's a credit to him. Yeah, absolutely. He did keep attacking, and you could see it too. I mean, he just made Federer look uncomfortable from pretty much anywhere on the court, honestly. you know, he 62 had Federer, winners yeah. against 36 unforced errors. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, that, and see, here's the thing. Look at that. We say that's an insane ratio. And the match was still six seven seven six seven five seven six, you know. So I mean, and that's what it takes to beat one of these guys, you know. Um, and so yeah, all the credit in the world for Tsitsipas for not only his performance but keeping it together mentally. And you know, what else can you say, honestly? Well, just for the sake of comparison, you look at the runs of Tiafo and Tsitsipas, both guys born in 1998 for Tsitsipas. He takes out Berrettini in four, Troisky in four, Basilashvili in four, and then Fed in four versus Tiafo, who goes Gunaswari in three sets, Anderson four sets, Seppi five, Dimitrov four. Which of these two guys, because they've both been so impressive, which of these two guys do you see sustain, are more as more likely to sustain this level throughout 2019? Man, that's that's tough. I mean, going with the numbers, I think you if you're just looking at this on paper, I think you gotta say Tsitsipas just because of the way he ended that twenty eighteen campaign. Um, and he's been, you know, a little higher. I mean, look, he's what, he's fourteen seed in this, you know, so he's mm-hmm. he's main, he's maintained this a little longer. So, you know, just, just based on that track record alone, I think you have to give the edge to him. Um, but I wouldn't doubt uh, Tiafo, especially with these performances as of late. Um, he's certainly shown that he has the passion for it and that he can he can get good wins, you know. However, I mean, honestly, I mean, he was dying physically in some of these matches, it looked like, especially toward the end of Dimitrov match. I mean, it looked like he couldn't even run sometimes. Um, and, you know, was he just trying to conserve energy? Was he just trying to, you know, look that part a little bit? I mean, I don't know. Then you, you can get into all the mind games you want. But, I mean, there were times where it looked like he was down and out, especially toward the, the, the latter stages of that match, and yet he turned it around. And so how do you doubt a guy like that? I mean, Tiafo has a natural waddle to his waddle. Well, then you're not it. wrong. His, his gait his... is a little odd. <laughs> he has the biggest I've ever seen. And I've said that before in a pod, so I don't feel weird saying it now. That thing is huge. Um, but, you know, we, we don't have to talk about that. We can talk about Tsitsipas Feder. And I have one last question for you on this. It feels like we're doing this every time, but... You know, now that it's been a couple slams in a row, Wimbledon, uh, U.S. Open, Australian Open, where Federer doesn't even or falls, you know, quarterfinals or earlier. <sighs> Do you see Fed winning a slam in 2019? I know it's very early to ask that question, but I have to. I mean, basically, what you're asking. So it's not going to be the French because he's not going to play. He's already out of this one. So now you're you're looking at Wimbledon or U.S. Open. Wimbledon, I mean, you think you got you got to like his chances, you know, coming after fresh after the clay court season. So I think yeah, he has a chance there. Um, but if, if it's an informed Djokovic, you know, no matter the surface, you never know if Federer can actually pull that off. I don't know, honestly. Yeah. My heart tells me yes, but my gut tells me no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that answer. We can leave that there. Let's talk about our next match. This, to me, was a very fun match. And, you know, we could have talked about all eight of these Grand, uh, of these Grand Slam round of 16 affairs. But, of course, we, want, we always focus on the young guys, the next-gen guys. Those are going to be the matches we break down. Of course, we'll touch on everything. But this next match, number 28 seed, Luca Pui, one of the guys Rothman and I had as stock down coming into this event, takes out number 11 seed, Borna Chorich, 6-7, 6-4, 7-5, 7-6. I have never seen anyone make or no that's not true. I may have seen people make as many but never seen anyone make more backhand down the lines in a match than Luca Pui did in this one. Yeah, he I mean he was feeling it on that backhand side especially. Um hey, and his his forehand cross court looked pretty good at times too. I mean, he he did play a phenomenal match in this. Um super entertaining like you said from start to finish. You know, this is another one of those and this this is kind of a given and you know, ones that go four or five sets but a lot of momentum swings in this one. It, it was it was a roller coaster to watch, honestly, because you think, oh, Pui's got the edge, and then you're, but the match starts off with George winning a tough breaker. You know, you just, I don't know. It, it was fun to watch, but also kind of stressful if I really had anything invested. Well, <laughs> well, you know, speaking off the record, I know some people who may have had a dollar or two invested on sure. this match and may have had a George Zverev parlay that mm. I agreed with and did not end up going well. Um, 
this match was an either or. All of these matches in this round were. It, if it would have gone, you know, you could have scripted any of these matches a different way, and I would have believed the outcome. In this match, you know, Chorch was very clear about what he wanted to do. He didn't want to hit to the Pui forehand. Pui's got much more firepower on that side. He's much more comfortable dictating from that side. So Chorch was hitting forehands down the line, you know, really trying to work the backhand angle, not hitting as many backhand down the lines himself. And to Pui's credit, he just fired away. You know, 19 aces against two double faults, wins 65% of his first serves, 83% uh, – uh, sorry, makes 65% of his first serves, wins 83% of those points, 55% of his second serves, 57 winners against 43 unforced errors, and, you know, an efficient 13 of 18 at the net. The thing he did best to put Chorch on the defensive, and I will get to the Chorch component in a second, but Chorch only wins 34% of his second yep. serve points, going 12 of 35. Yep. Pui was attacking that ball. He knew, you know, I can't let Chorch run me around. I need to be aggressive whenever possible. And even if that didn't manifest itself in Pui coming to the net, he still put Chorch, you know, on six feet behind the baseline right away. Exactly. No, that's the next thing I was going to say, looking at that stat. I mean, it's like, that, that stat, 34%, yeah, there's definitely things that George could have done on his second serve that would have been better. But for the most part, it was just Pui and his trust in himself to take that take that ball a little earlier and do something with it. Um, and he kept the pressure on George. It was relentless throughout this um, throughout this affair. And, like, you know, it paid off. I, I agree with you, and I will get back to George again. But for George, he wins 34% of his second uh, serve points and loses. Medvedev's at 35% against Djokovic and loses. Zverev's at 35% against Rayonich, of all people, and loses. You know, a lot of these young guys, it's not even that their first serve percentages were that low. It's just you still have to be aggressive with that second serve. You're playing the best returners in the world. You cannot afford to be put on the defensive like that right away. Now, for Chorich, I think he's adding a new component to his game this year. You can tell he consciously worked on moving forward, getting to the net. And in this match, he goes 27 of 50, 54% conversion rating. Not great. And, you know, it seemed like every net cord went Pui's way. You can tell who I was rooting for in this one. (laughs) Um, But still... It, I was happy to see it because he doesn't look great up there. It's still a little stiff, but he now knows when the opportunity comes to forward present uh, to come forward presents itself. I have to take it. No, you're you're right, and you know that's the twenty-seven of fifty. Not a great rate, like you said, but you know some of that's a product of maybe coming in at the wrong time because you know he's trying to push himself to you know better his game, which I appreciate. Some of it is you know the fault rests on the approach shot itself, um, and that's fine, but. Coming out of this match, I mean, there's some definitely some positive takeaways, and you know, if he, especially in this first half of 2019, if he's really trying to, um, you know, add this to his game, you know, I, I really respect the fact that he he's all right with he's going to come to the net, and yeah, he's going to lose you know some points at the net, um, and in his head, he's like, God, if I would have stayed back, I probably could have won that, but um, I really respect his you know his willingness to you know just try this, you know, trust his coaching staff and trust that this is what's going to you know get him to the next level. I agree with you. I want to ask one more thing about Chorich before we move on. You know, Matt Zemick on Twitter at MZemick, he's a guy who writes for Tennis Accent, brought up a really interesting point. You know, Chorich, through this point of his career, no Grand Slam quarterfinals. Alex Zverev, only one quarterfinal. Yet it feels like Zverev gets so much more criticism. When I think Chorich is a guy we should be just as high, or maybe not just as high on, but still very high on in terms of a potential Grand Slam champion. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely flown under the radar more, um, and you know maybe it's because of results like this one um, that he just hasn't really been able to break through. And you, you're absolutely right; there's definitely more pressure on Zverev. And you know he's he's had the bigger results in you know Masters 1000s and stuff. And you know he's he's been at the top, top, you know, not just around top 15, top 20. Um, but needless to say, yeah, I mean there definitely needs to be more of a focused eye on Chorich because he has the talent. Um, it's just uh, it's just a matter of sustaining that level and you know making the breakthrough in the big tournaments. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Well, let's talk about another guy who I think did make a breakthrough in this event despite losing his match. I'm talking about Daniil Medvedev, who loses to number one seed Novak Djokovic, six four, six seven, six two, six three. This match was very very physical. It was. It was, and you could see it. I mean, Djokovic usually hides it decently well just because he's in such great shape and he, you know, he's so comfortable being on the defensive and turning it into offense. But it was incredibly physical and you could you could see the toll it was taking on Medvedev, no doubt. 
Oh, I, I think that third set, oh, yeah. he was just, he was gassed. I mean, oh, those absolutely. first two sets, neither guy missed a ball. And it was so interesting to see Daniil Medvedev, who's obviously got one of, if not the ugliest high-functioning forehands on tour. You know, he was hitting inside-in backhands. He seemed like he wanted to play backhand to backhand with Djokovic, which I have never seen anyone outside cool. of maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say maybe Andy Murray does that sometimes, but other than him, no one does that with Novak Djokovic. And to, to Medvedev's credit, he held his own. I will say, before we... Uh, I, you're, you're right. That's the one point I forgot to make on the Puy George match. How many great backhand to backhand rallies did we see? Oh, it was so was fun awesome. to watch. It was a stark contrast to the yeah. usual tennis. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, that's that's a whole different thing, but I just forgot to mention that. Um, Luca Puy is a pleasure to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the game is easy on the eyes. <laughs> and so is he. What? No, I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> no, but this Medvedev match was awesome. Um, and he, I, I appreciate his willingness to use that backhand. Um, and you know at the end of the day though like just too many unforced errors from his side i mean because like we said earlier in the federer match he's got he's got to play basically a perfect clean match to get out of this um you know uh, you look at the statistics 49 unforced errors at 38 winners not going to get it done against Djokovic, especially back to the second serve win percentage statistic 17 of 49 35 percent i i mean yeah you're going up against Djokovic, best returner but still more's got to be done I yeah, the staff speak for themselves. I would also say on the last thing about the Medvedev backhand, it's so funny on the do side how he stands all the way out wide, hits the slice serve out wide, and his favorite combo is the serve oh, and ba- you know plus one yeah. backhand. That it's one not two the punch, plus one yeah, and it's exactly. good. It's really it good. Yeah, he loves that backhand from the middle of the court. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, he's a guy who's a subtle 6'6". He's on the thinner side, but he's definitely a big guy. Hits 18 aces against, you know, six double faults. You have to be a little bit riskier when you're playing a returner as good as Novak Djokovic. Mm-hmm. You know, makes 65% of his first serves to his credit. Uh, go Wins 70% of those first serve points. Fights off 11 break points. Now, of course, Novak Djokovic still breaks him seven times. And, yeah. you know, that's never going to get it done. But, you know, Medvedev... His floor, another thing, not necessarily the ceiling, but his floor is so high because he just he does a lot of things on the court really well. And you might want to make the comparison to Marin Cilic. I don't think he has the firepower on the forehand that Marin ever did. I do think he's much more consistent than him. And it's a guy who's six six and consistent. I don't even know what to think of him. I don't know. I mean, this is this is another one, definitely, especially with these young guys, that time will tell. You know, if he can develop his game, maybe develop that forehand a little bit more, you know, you hate to see it be... I mean, it's not that it's just like a severe weakness, but it could I be think a it's, lot more. I think it's good when it's on the run, when he doesn't have time to think about it, but, you know, he never wants to attack with the forehand side. He can't, you know, just on, on cue rip forehands inside out. Well, actually, sometimes he can, and that's the most amazing thing, but, you know, if you're overwhelming that side with pace because his right. backswing is a little big, that that's a not necessarily a weakness, but it's not a strength. Well, and see, do you see the same thing that we've talked about with Tiafoe's forehand? It's interesting. So I got the chance to watch Medvedev in person, and I think his racket speed is so much better when you actually get to see it up front. I think Tiafoe's hitch is a little bit even bigger than that in terms of his wrist seems to you know face the ground at one yeah. point before flicking back out, but. What am I saying? You know, it's nitpicking. Who am I to critique uh, their form? I just, it's ugly, but it works. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. Hey, if you, if you win, you're getting, I mean, yeah, you don't beat Djokovic, but hey, still a good outing for Medvedev, honestly. Yeah, and we haven't said a word about Djokovic from him in this match. Makes well, this is we expect greatness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, Max Fligner, our producer, brought up a great point before this podcast when we were talking, and... There's got to be something in the back of Novak Djokovic's mind where he says, hey, you know, Roger Federer is at best 80% of what he used to be. And I say that respectfully. He's still an incredibly good player, but he's not prime Roger. You never know what to think with Rafa. Quietly, his draw has been on the easier side. You know, if you told Rafa, hey, your round of 16 matches is going to be against Tomas Burdich, he'd be like, yep, sign me up for that. I'm in. Um so you don't, you know, it's maybe 85% of Rafa, and who knows where he's going to be at the end of the year. You have so many young guys, but none of them have really broken through yet. If there's ever a time to pad your Grand Slam stats, maybe even think, hey, if I play this right, I could go for the Golden Slam this year. You know, Novak Djokovic has to think, this is my chance. 
well, not only this year, but especially the next few years. Because, you know, not that the old guys are deteriorating, but, I mean, Nadal, you never know, like you said, knee injury, ankle injury, a wrist, you know, you never know. Federer, you know, it's just he's taken off clay, so that's one less guy there. And then you think, well, is he really going to be top Roger? No, probably not. He's still dangerous, but you know, you're absolutely right. The opportunity is there. And so it does surprise me when people talk about Djokovic and they think – they think the 20 of Federer is so unreachable, unattainable, and I just don't see it. I think it absolutely is, which scares me because I'd rather have Federer go down as having more titles or at least Grand Slam titles than Djokovic, but it's definitely attainable, I think. I could not agree more, and Max Ligner has more nuance than I ever could. I think the argument at the end of the day is going to be, look, Novak Djokovic is the best hardcourt player of yep. all time. Rafa Nadal is the best clay court player of all time. Roger Federer is the best grass court player yep. of all time. And that's not the case yet because Novak's not quite there, although obviously as the devil's advocate, I'd be happy to make the argument that he already is. Uh, but if he pads these stats, if he wins, let's say, four more slams in his career and who's to say that's not possible he wins you know australian oh, u.s Austra- yeah it's very very possible then he's at 18 mm-hmm. and then it's like well now we have to talk now we have to look at everything the the bigger yeah. context so uh, the the reason i bring that up is novak played a little bit tentatively in this match he didn't try to you know go after balls as early as maybe he could have he comes in that 42 times in this match which is higher than you're expecting you know converts 26 of those opportunities for a 62 percent conversion rate he just i don't know maybe he's saving some gas in the tank because he knows what's still ahead of him but I don't know. I, I it's, it's just he's fascinating. I've never been this fascinated by Novak Djokovic in his entire career. Let me say this. I think it's also just comfortable for him mentally because he knows that especially on these courts with who he is, with where he's at in his game, he is so comfortable just being at the baseline going back and forth, backhand, backhand, backhand down the line. For I mean, he he just it's so easy for him to just sit there and hit ground strokes all day. And Medvedev knows, literally Medvedev literally tried to trade backhands with yeah, him. Yeah, and, and he knows Djokovic knows that he can do this all day and he can win points with it. Whether he takes all of the offensive opportunities given to him or not, he knows that even if he doesn't, <laughs> A, he'll probably set one up for himself just by being a backboard or B you know what's going to get past him the guy's going to miss before he is he knows that he can keep incredible depth on the ball no matter where he is on the court i mean he tracks everything down he knows that he can do this and so i think there's definitely some comfort mentally for him that he's like i can do this i don't really have to do that much different i can just stay super super solid here and i'm fine Another guy who looks so comfortable on the court right now and you know in the, and i think we don't talk about that enough but these guys uh, you know, the Djokovic's, the Nadal, part of their advantage is they know exactly what they want to do on the court. You know, Milos Raonic right now, in taking out Alex Zverev, 6-1, 6-1, he may, you know, Zverev may have played like absolute garbage, but Milos knew exactly what he wanted to do in that match, and it was so impressive to see him, you know, just execute flawlessly. Yeah, this was, honestly, if you were watching this, I'm sorry. This was such a dumb match to watch. Um, <laughs> but unless you're unless you're a Canadian fan, you know. I respect that. Uh, but no, here's the thing. The, the one thing I've heard the most about is everyone's so shocked about this loss to Zverev. Yeah, I'm lost about the fact that two of the sets were – I'm shocked that two of the sets were 6-1, 6-1. I'm not surprised at all that he loses this match. I didn't have Zverev going to the next round in my bracket, and I, like, I'm just not surprised that he lost this match at all. Um, and so the shock factor is kind of lost on me. I mean, Stokowiak wanted to come on today's podcast desperately so he could tell me how wrong I am about Zverev, how Zverev always plays passively in the big moments, and I was begging Zverev to come back so that I would bring him on and do the exact opposite, but Matt's right. You know, Zverev was so tentative in this match, in that third set, the closest set. You know, he goes down, I think it was 5-6 or maybe 4-5, two match points, and or maybe it was a tie, but the point is a break at that point is essentially a match point, and he just tried to play the ball to Rayonich's backhand. He didn't move in. He didn't change directions. He just, you know, Rayonich was only going to slice. And Zverev said, okay, I'm just going to keep playing this side till you mess up. And you look at the net points for this, Zverev only 4 of 11, 36% right there. You know, 
11 times coming to the net in a match, it's just not going to cut it in a major round of 16. You know, 21 winners against only 23, or against 23 unforced errors when you're Alex Zverev, that's not going to cut it in a major. You have to be better than that. And as we mentioned, Rayonish played great. You know, 45 winners against 24 unforced errors for him, 33 of 48 at the net. He wins 80% of his first serve points, serves 69% of his first serves in, but just disappointing from Zverev because this was a yeah. very winnable match. Well, I mean, at the start of the match, yeah, you're, he I served mean, you're like right. Well, he, he served terrible. like garbage. He was terrible, and it was it was completely in his head too. And that this is why this match was so hard to watch. Honestly, Zverev just kept double faulting, kept double faulting, and I mean, not only did he look immature out there, he just looked lost. I mean, he just did not have it at all. And so, when you look at the stat sheet for this one. It honestly, based on if you were watching, it should honestly look more lopsided than this because it was <laughs> embarrassing. I turned it off like halfway if, through. I was like, this is just pointless. This is not something I look up, but I'm sure Jonathan Kelly knows the answer. When was the last time Milos Raonic had 20 break points in a match? Yeah, good God. I don't know. But yeah, like, just if like, you're giving him 20 mortifying. break points, either Raonic is God mode or you're doing something severely wrong. And in this case, Varev was doing a lot severely wrong. Yeah, and so everyone has off days, and to Zero's credit, he cracked the f*** out of a racket. Mm, like, yeah, oh, my God. Oh, nice. So, hey, great shot to him. Mm. But it, it's just, I know how frustrated he must be. This was such a winnable match, and, you know, he had such a great opportunity. I think he would have played. Was who, it? Who, okay. All right, let's back up. Was this that winnable of a match? Was for it? him, yeah, you have to just be disciplined to hold serve. This is a guy who lost, what was it, three sets in the Miami fi- final to Isner, but he's played Isner millions of times. You know what you're getting with a big server. You have to be disciplined. You have to make a high percentage of your first serves. You have to take some risks with your second serve, but not double fault ten times. You know, you have to be willing to mo- change direction on the big guy, make him play a little bit of defense. And Zverev didn't do that in this match. Now you're right. Milos Raonic is playing sweet. So I'm not I'm not trying to be too harsh on Alex Zverev. It's just because my expectations are now so high for him. I know yeah. what he's capable of. But I guess you're I, if you're saying Milos is playing really well, so we shouldn't be that shocked. I I see that argument. Yeah, I'm just not I mean, I'm just truthfully I'm just not that shocked at this result. I am like I said earlier, I'm shocked at the the first two sets. I mean, that was embarrassing to say the least, but that was more that was more Zverev on himself than it was Ronic. I mean, Ronic did what he had to do and held. Zverev just gave him opportunities and gifted him games, honestly. I feel bad for keep bringing up gambling, but I just think these odds are fascinating. <laughs> what would you put Milos Raonic's odds right now to win this major? To win this major? Oh, dude. I mean, uh Right now he's he's twelve to one, uh, in the odds makers have him twelve to one. Would you place that bet? Given how he's serving, given how just he he looks routine out there. He's what lost one set and it was to Stan. Yeah, I don't know. Give me. Yeah, I, I, I'd put like ten dollars, twenty dollars on it. <laughs> I, I, it's just it's I'm not interesting. Going bold. Yeah, that's fine. Well. Let's talk about some of the other results from the day. As we mentioned, there was so much great tennis. Let's breeze through this one real quick. Rafa Nadal takes out Tomas Burdich, 6-0, Did Rafa really get tested in this match? Did he look that good, or was it a meltdown really from Burdich? I mean, definitely less of a meltdown than this Vera Vranich match. Uh, Nadal just looked super solid. Didn't give him a thing. Um, now, don't get me wrong, Burdich had a, like, certainly had chances to make it <laughs> nowhere near this bad of a beating. Um, and there was a pretty funny moment, too, when, when Burdich finally won that first game in the second set where the crowd got just incredibly loud. And it was like, it was cool, but it was also kind of embarrassing. Like, yeah, dude, that, that blows. <laughs> like, that sucks, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's, that seemed to be a theme of this round. Yeah, Rafa... Look, Rafa has cruised. He hasn't dropped yeah. a, shot, uh, a set yet. We, we certainly are going to be seeing him this second week, and I think his match versus Tiafo is going to be fascinating, maybe one even to stay awake for. Uh, let's talk about these other two matches. You know, Roberto Bautista Agut, seems like every time he's playing a fifth set in this tournament, takes out Marin Cilic, the defending finalist, 6-7-6-3-6-2-4-6-6-4. Fun fact for you, Jamie, RBA is now 7-2 and in Australian Open fifth sets. Uh, of players who have played a minimum of nine five-set matches, he's behind only Sampras, Lepenti, Safin, Baghdadis, and Vlander with the highest win percentage of all time. That, that's pretty good stuff from him. 
I don't even know what to do with that stat, but that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, well, real quick, we haven't talked about him at all. A quiet quarterfinal appearance for him. The first major or major quarterfinal appearance of his career. <laughs> Any shot? You know, what do you think of his chances of, I think he's got Tsitsipas next and then I mean, great opportunity, great opportunity for him in this next round, honestly. I mean, don't get me wrong, Tsitsipas is good and he's riding a high after beating Federer like that. But Bautista, good. I mean, especially with someone who's not Djokovic. I mean, with the way he takes the ball so early, I mean, he's going to put a lot of pressure on Tsitsipas, I think. Um, you know, and so if Stefanos is playing as well as he was in the last round, who knows? But I don't count Bautista Agut out on this one at all. And we should say for Bautista Agut, you know, he won Doha in the lead-up into this tournament. As we mentioned, he's beaten Murray, Milman, Kiachinov, Chilich. He has wins over Djokovic, Burdic, and Wawrinka this year as well. Who's to say he doesn't keep this level up? I, I think if he can take time away from Tsitsipas, that's going to be fascinating. But we can talk more about that when we preview those matches. We had to end with this match because, you know, this was maybe the most drama-filled match in a round where Roger Federer lost. Of course, that's Kei Nishikori's 6-7, 4-6, 7-6, 6-4, 7-6 win over number 23 seed Pablo Carreno Busta. The big controversy from this match, 8-5, Carreno Busta's up in the third set, super breaker. You know, I think Nishikori hits a serve and gets a PCB stretch, and he barely gets a ball, flicks back into play. Nishikori had the easiest backhand put away in the world. PCB was running one way. Nishikori was ready to hit the other. And a linesman calls that ball out, and of course, Karina Busta challenges. The ball ends up being in, and rather than replaying the point, what does the line judge do? He rules in favor of Nishikori, says it's Nishikori's point. He was in an obvious position. To, he had already hit the backhand winner, and Karina Busta kind of lost it from there. Yeah, I mean, that's mentally that's tough, um, you know, because if you're watching it, he definitely, it, the ball was called out, you know, before Nishikori really hit that shot um, all the way through. So you definitely understand the frustration. Now, you know, if the line judge doesn't make that bad call, it's a moot point because Nishikori has a free winner. Um, but you understand Karinovusta's frustration, especially at that point in the match. I mean, look, this guy was up two sets to love. Let's that lead go. You know, he's down, he's down breaks, he gets him back. You know, he's following this match incredibly. He gets to that breaker in the fifth set, and he's ready he puts himself in a phenomenal position, 8-5 up. This happens, and, you know, if you're him, I, much easier said than done, of course. You know, you're exhausted mentally, physically, but you got to be better about moving on on this one. I mean, you, you just have to. That's what that's what the top guys are going to do. Yeah, and for Kane Ishikori, all credit to him. You know, he's come back now from two sets to love down twice in this tournament. He becomes one of ten other guys in uh, Australian Open history to have ever done that. The record held by Nicholas Escude in 1998. Just a fun fact for you, Jamie. Uh, yeah, and of course it sucks. You know, there's nothing you can do, but y- you ha- you have to find a way to rebound the way... Uh, Karina Busta, you know, tomahawks his bag across the court after he had immediately came out and apologized, said his emotion got the best of him. Yeah. And while that apology was, of course, sincere, while we always, emotion happens on the tennis court. We've all been there where we've all thrown a racket. I mean, for <laughs> sake, our company name is Cracked Rackets. We get what you're talking about, and we get that sort of feeling, and we think that's what makes tennis such an enjoyable sport, is because you get to see that manifest on from a person. Uh, but you just have to be a little bit tougher there. You just have to. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're right. Because at the end of the day, you know, he loses that. But look, he's still up. He's still up in that breaker. Like, he yeah. still has a great chance to win the match. And so if mentally, you know, you just got to overcome that. And so, yeah, it'd be nice to have that point back. But you're still up in the breaker, man. Like, you got to get back to the line and, and move on to the next one. Um, and, you know, you understand it's kind of a theme throughout this match. You know, he thinks he has him. He's up two sets to none. That gets erased. He thinks he has him, doesn't. Thinks he has him, doesn't. And so I think this is just kind of the last draw. And, you know, it was sad to see it unfold like this. But, you know, needless to say, great match. Yeah, and I want to talk about the quarterfinal matches before we go. But one last thing from this. You know, we've now seen a bunch of fifth set super breakers up to 10. What do you think of the format so far? I mean, I don't know. It's At a certain point, all of these are just kind of arbitrary, right? I mean, they're, <laughs> all true. four majors now have different circumstances for what happens. So, I, I mean, who's to say? I mean, I guess this is fine. Like, 
if I guess if it's a regular tiebreak, you know, this match is a different result. Um, I mean, that's just that's the way tennis is. It's it's all about a scoring format, and you know, you follow it. Like it's a ten point breaker, and that sucks because if it was a seven pointer, he would have won, and he'd be on to the next round instead of Nishikori. But it's not. Um, I'm fine with it. I. I I don't necessarily think it's the best solution, but, you know, it is what it is, and we play how it is. I like it a lot. I love that there's a finish line. I like the extended tiebreak. Seven's just too short when the match is on the line, and, of course, it, you know, allows junior players, players who play with a third-set breaker, yeah, to suck. relate to the format. It's it's interesting, though. It's it's very drama intense. It's it's very, very fun to me. So I've enjoyed that format so far. Let's talk about our quarterfinal matches. Uh, some stats to set the round. You know, we still have two next-gen ATPers alive, Tsitsipas and Tiafo. They're making the first major quarterfinals of their career for comparison. You know, only Zverev and uh, I'll count team in this mix. Edmund Chung had made uh, slam quarterfinals or better in 2018. You know, team and Rublev both did it in 2017 as well. In terms of the Australian Open quarterfinals in their career, this is Nadal's 11th. That's crazy. Djokovic's 10th. That's crazy. Nishikori and Raonic, a quiet four each. I feel like those are the two leading guys of the Lost Generation pack. And then, of course, RBA, Pui, uh, Tiafo, and Tsitsipas all making the first slam quarterfinals of their, uh, the first Australian Open quarterfinals of their career. In terms of their careers in general, you have Djokovic making his 43rd quarterfinal. That's f***ing ridiculous. Nadal making his 37th, still equally ridiculous. Uh, Nishikori making his 10th, Raonic his 9th, Puy his 3rd, and then RBA, Tiafo, Tsitsipas uh, making their first. Jimmy, which of these matches is most interesting to you? Most interesting? I, I got to go with Tsitsipas and Batista Agu. Um I think this one's going to be a really fun one to watch, honestly. And it's, you know, you got two guys who have never been here before, you know, vying for an even bigger spot um, at at this stage. Both of them have had both of them have had tricky matches. I'd say Bautista Gu like just crazier matches in general with the five setters. Um, but I think this is one that honestly could go either way. Um, I don't think. I mean, I think Sitsipas is the favorite on paper, sure, higher seed and you know probably fresher physically. Um, but this is one that I'm really going to be watching. I hope I get to watch this entire match because I think stylistically it's an interesting matchup. You know, you have very different strokes. Um, you have different game styles. I don't know. I think it's going to be fun. That's my favorite one I'm looking for. When you talk about their paths coming in, we mentioned this earlier, RBA Murray in five, Milman in five, Kiachinov in three, Chilich in five. Tsitsipas has gone to four sets in all of his matches, but of course coming off of such an emotional high in the win over Federer, it's always tough to rebound after a match like that. You know, this is their first career matchup. I worried in the Federer match that if he's able to take time uh, take time take time away from Tsitsipas hey great shot to me that Tsitsipas would struggle and of course Tsitsipas goes out and wins that match I just I don't know how Roberto Bautista Gut has any energy left in the tank I probably say Tsitsipas is the slight favorite heading into this one yeah all right yeah, all right, well then let's move on to our next match. Let's stick on the bottom half, talk about another young guy, Francis Tiafo, uh, playing his first career match against Rafael Nadal, the number two seed. You look at their paths, Tiafo Gunaswarian in three, Anderson in four, Seppi in five, Dimitrov in four. Uh, for Nadal, Duckworth in three, Edmund in three, Dimenauer in three, Burdich in three. Uh, what is it going to take from Francis to win this match? I honestly don't know. That's the scary part, <laughs> because... You look at this and you say, oh, wow, the young Aussie, Damon Hour, he's playing some great tennis. Just gets absolutely dismantled. You're like, Burdich, he's back. He's looking good. Look at that forehand. Dismantled. Like, I just don't even know. He hasn't been tested, and so you got to hope that the young American will at least be able to do that much. But, I mean, seriously, how do you even put words to it? Because you don't know what it takes at this point because he's just been absolutely smashing through his section of the draw emotionally physically Tiafo has to be drained at this point and that's not to blame him for anything that happens that's a credit to the effort he's put in thus far and if he's able to summon another effort like that able to hang with Nadal extend the match to four or five sets even if he doesn't win that's a success for him I'm not placing any bets because I've been so wrong about this tournament you know for the entirety of the tournament but 
yeah, I just there's not a lot of scenarios where I, where I see you know Nadal losing this match. No. Maybe Tiafo serves out of his mind. Maybe Nadal misses a lot of first serve, and Francis is just gunning uh, return winners. But do you think that's going to happen over the course of five sets? No. Well, and I think I think one thing too that could be tough in a matchup like this is that this has been such a breakthrough for Tiafo. I hope it doesn't feel like. I mean, yeah, of course, I think he's, you know, just based on his attitude, I think he's going to come ready for this. But like you said, he'll be physically drained. You know, sure, who wouldn't be? My biggest thing is I hope that he's just not complacent with, oh, it's Nadal. And, you know, I don't think that'll be his attitude, but I think it'll be a lot of other people's attitude. Like you just said, it's like, oh, if he extend this to set, that's a good tournament for him. But honestly, God, I mean, and that's that's fair. But at the same time, if you go in with that attitude, I mean, you're you're setting yourself up for failure there. Yeah, uh, you said you know it all. I mean? No, yeah, completely. Like... I, I think you said it perfectly. In fact, so well, I think we should move on to our next match. Another one I think has the chance uh, to to be a blowout. Novak Djokovic taking on number eight seed Kei Nishikori. Yeah, that's a head to head. Djokovic leads fifteen to two, and we've seen this matchup before. Djokovic took Nishikori out in the U.S. Open semifinals six three six four six two. The thing I'll just point to for Nishikori, five sets his first round, five sets against Karlovic the second round, three sets against Sosa the third round, but then another five sets against Karina Busta. That is literally the path you want to have taken the least before you match up with Novak Djokovic. And not only is it taking a toll, I mean, just inevitably it has taken a toll on him mentally, physically, and whatever. Um, Not not only that, but you've got to ask yourself, okay, if he's going five sets with these guys— what in the world is going to happen when he steps on a court with Djokovic? <laughs> like that's that's yeah. frightening, you know, and that's that's not a good look at all. Um, especially with how fresh Djokovic is. I mean, he's had, I mean, yeah, I guess his last two rounds have been decent contests, but nothing that has really pushed him, you know. Oh, um, strong counterpoint. The Shapovalov match was a blowout, hidden as a four-set match. You don't think there was any competition to that? No, of course there was competition. There's competition in all of these matches. I think Medvedev's the first guy who actually pushed Djokovic physically, and that's why, like you mentioned, I think Djokovic just comes into this match fresh. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. This this one is uh, this one might be really hard to watch too. Honestly, this could be this has potential. Not saying it will be, but this has potential to be a huge beatdown. Oh, I mean, Nishikori's your guy, so you have all the incentive in the world to, to watch I, this I hate, match. I hate this conversation. <laughs> I was I was actively cheering against him both while the score was happening and when I rewatched the entire match. I was hoping somehow it would end out, it would shake out differently when I was watching the, the I, fifth I do set rec- in this last round. I do remember seeing a Go Karlovich text from you at some point. Yeah, that's think. true. And yeah. God, Karlovich, now Nishikori's played two. I would say at least the Karlovich and Karina matches. His opponents 110% had chances to win those matches and knock him out of the tournament, and both of them just completely faltered. <laughs> Beside yeah. the point. Yeah, well, I don't think either of us think Djokovic is going to falter in this one. Let's talk about the match that I think most tennis nerds may enjoy the most of these. Well, that's not true. Anytime you have two young guys, Tsitsipas and Tiafo, take all of that tennis nerd headlines. But just a fascinating in terms of what do we make of their careers to this point thus far. Milos Raonic coming in, maybe playing as well as anyone in the draw, playing number 28 seed Luka Pui. Raonic leads their head-to-head 3-0. They played in Stuttgart in 2018. Raonic won that match 6-4, 7-6. You know, both guys have taken interesting paths to get here. Pui knocks out Kakushkin in three sets, Martyr in four, Alexi Papyrin, the young Australian wildcard, in five in the third round, although that was a match he led two sets to love, and then Chorich in four sets, uh, obviously, this round. Raonic, if, listen to this draw for Raonic. Kyrgios in three sets, Warinka in four, Erber in three, Zverev in three. Tell me that's not the toughest draw of any player in it the draw. Is. It is. And now, that's nuts. That and he, and he's draw. lost one set. That is a tough draw. I'll give you that. And But it's one of those things, too, where you're watching him. It's like no matter how tough the draw is, unless you give him those top, top guys who are in good form, you know, if he's serving well, the racket's out of those guys' hands. And so that's that's why this match, I mean, honestly, you look at look at their last match, 6-4-7-6. I would not be surprised if that's basically a mirror of what's going to happen because – Ronish just does this to you, man, especially when he's serving this well. I mean, he like, yeah, he might catch a break off some slap forehands and then he'll just bomb aces and unreturnable serves. It's just, and so it might not be that fun to watch, but it, it, this could be a 
this could be tough for Puy because he's going to have to do something special here, especially on his return games. He's, I mean, he has to. Yeah, I, it, Puy's going to have to take some risks in this one. I definitely agree. Yeah. He's not going to have as many chances to step up on second serves like he did against Chorich. No. You know, Reynoch is going to be rushing the net, so he'll need his passing shots to work. He'll need to be able to change direction at the baseline, keep the ball away from the Reynoch forehand. I don't know. I, I could see either guy winning this match. I agree. Raonic is definitely the favorite. But yep. one last question, then we can wrap up. You know, Stefano Tsitsipas, Francis Tiafo, obviously the two young guys in this draw. You think we see one of them in the semifinals? Oh uh, well, I mean, if you're picking between those two, your odds are definitely better with Tsitsipas. I think if any of, I will say this. Let me back up for a second. Out of these four matches, the one with a potential on paper upset, the highest potential I think, is definitely against Tsitsipas. That being said, he's got to have better odds to move to the next round than Tiafo does. I mean, going up against Nadal who hasn't dropped a set, like that's that's yeah. ooh, that's about as tough as it comes. But, oh, see, Raonic has served so well, but if he had a bad serving day, you could argue Pui might be the big, uh, the best underdog to take. I mean, Tiafo's obviously the longest shot. I don't know. Who better shot, Tiafo or Nishikori? Oh, God. <laughs> Those are both... I mean, I don't know. Maybe if you're, if you're going the, the absolute tree route, you might as well say Tiafo on this one, but... I'm sticking with it. Best odds for an upset on paper is Batista Agut. All right, that's fair. Well, then we can leave that there. Jamie, thank you for taking the time to do this. Of course, I want to thank our super producers as well, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westhoff, who have an editing job to do, as always. If you've missed anything from this year's Australian Open, go check out our website, CrackedRackets.com. We will be keeping you guys up to date throughout this entire Grand Slam. Of course, now these daily podcasts are going to be coming at the end of each round as opposed to every day. So be on the lookout for those and catch up on any you might have missed so that you're well aware of what's going on as these quarterfinal matches are being played. Uh, Jamie, any final thoughts before we wrap up? I'm excited to watch, as always. Oh, actually, no. One final thought. I almost forgot this. Marin Cilic in his box. I don't know. It must be like his <laughs> lifting coach. That guy's arms are huge. It's ridiculous. I mean, have you been seeing that? Uh, tell me I'm not the only one who's noticed. That dude is he, ripped. Every time. <laughs> I no, not even ripped. Him. Jacked. He's massive. Him and Cilic probably lift together, and he's the only one of the two of them that actually gets bigger. Oh, my God. Dude, the guy is massive. His arms. His arms are just like three times bigger than my head. It just dude. it blows me away. He gets up to clap, and I'm like, oh, my God. The guys in Chorch's box are huge, too. Yeah, what is with all these people, man? <laughs> it's nuts. Well, definitely excited to leave that there. For our wonderful super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for my gracious fill-in co-host, James Foster McDonald, and from all of us at the Crack Rackets team, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we say to everyone? Hey, great shot. <laughs> we will see you in the quarterfinals. Thanks, everyone. 